This week on the Back Table Podcast. What I'm hearing from my friends, even over in, in, in Asia, is a lot of things that would have been surgically managed, um, they are choosing to have interventional manage it instead. So, for example, patients who might have gone for hepatic resection of a tumor, um, instead they'll, say, they'll uh, maybe relax their uh, restrictions on ablation or, or on you know, some other liver-directed therapy um, because they don't want to tie up the resources for um, the OR and all of the, all of the um, uh, supplies and equipment that go into that case. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck, private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. I'll be co-hosting today with Michael Barraza. Michael, you want to say hello? Hey, this is uh, Michael Barraza. I'm also in private practice and currently in Nashville. Awesome. And then we have uh, one of Michael's former uh, mentors and attendings, uh, Dr. Stephen Hunt. Stephen, would you like to introduce yourself and welcome back to the show? Sure, Stephen Hunt from University of Pennsylvania and uh, director of the Piggy Lab. And thanks for having me back on, guys. And good to have you. Good to have you. So today, the topic that we're trying to tackle is what's going on with interventional radiology's relationship to the COVID nineteen epidemic pandemic. Um, so we wanted to have Stephen on, who seems to be on the front lines of this thing, as many of us are, um, but can kind of talk. Um, from a standpoint of what are, what is a major academic institution like Penn doing and, you know, what guidance, if any, can can we kind of grab from his advice on this topic? So, Stephen, thanks a lot for uh, tackling this with us. Yeah, again, no problem. Yeah. And you can, so, we can confirm now it's not a hoax, right? <laughs> I think uh, I think the world is is coming around to that realization. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Stephen, can I can we can even give us um, a bird's eye view of what it's looking like at uh, university? Sure. So, you know, Pennsylvania is um, is and and Philadelphia is still a few weeks behind. I would say New York City, uh, China, and um, about a month behind Italy uh, and the other places that have been considered hotspots. Um, but. Uh, I first started hearing about, um, you know, the coronavirus outbreak and, and the new stuff from it from friends of mine in China in, in January. Um, and it kind of first affected my own timeline of work and stuff because I was supposed to be in, in the first week of February in um, in Korea for a conference. So, yeah, so I so it kind of first impacted my work schedule in terms of this this trip I was making for an, uh, an IR conference in Korea. Um, and so I realized um, at that point I had I had heard from some friends of mine in China about it, but it, it didn't seem so serious. And then it kind of the severity of it, it hit me like that. And then a friend, um, another friend of mine, Uwe Pua, who was putting together the conference with me, um, said that he had been told by his institution in Singapore not to uh, that he couldn't leave the country. That they were, you know, doctors were considered uh, essential personnel, and so they basically had their their names put on a blacklist at the airport. They weren't allowed to leave and they needed to stay. So that told me a lot about the kind of severity of what we were going to be dealing with. And can you kind of give us like a, an overview of, of what the IR practice has kind of morphed into or like what patient population now that we're 
more in the throes of the pandemic? Like what, how your practice has changed since all this has started and like what kind of patients you're seeing and what's dropped off and what's on the rise? Sure. So kind of immediately, one of the earliest things that we did in intervening and this really, we, we set this up, but it took a little time to rearrange the schedule. So it actually starts on this coming Monday is that um, we are restricted to a single institution, single, single hospital, and we're restricted to teams. So um, I will be, for example, working at the hospital, at the University of Pennsylvania. So I will not be going to the VA, and I did not go to the VA this week either. Um, and the the primary people at the VA, IRs, they will uh, be restricted to working um, at the VA. They will not be crossing over to work at the hosp- at the uh, main flagship hospital, the University of Pennsylvania. And the Presby folks will be restricted to working at Presby. Again, the point being that the doc kind of serves as that nucleus that if they got sick, they could they could, you know, uh, potentially infect teams at every hospital, right, if they're rotating around. Um, so some of it is that that social isolation and distancing, but at the level of hospital teams. When they use the term non-elective, really what we're talking about is, is this patient, medically speaking, um, going to be uh, significantly worse off if you, um, if you, you know, deflect the procedure till, you know, at least two months down the road, right, realistically, um, we don't think that things are going to be back to normal for at least two months. Now, it's probably going to be longer than that, but just using that as a time horizon uh, to, to kind of triage cases. And so um, things like, you know, uterine fibroid embolization, um, those also, those are all considered, you know, in, in kind of the going through it. But the SAR has a set of guidelines um, that I think people could refer to. But the, in our practice, the things that I've seen fall off are, um, you know, uh, venous cases, um, and, uh, and, uh, IBC filter retrievals, um, a lot of, uh, the tube checks that were perhaps routinely coming in to get their tube check. It's now really much more aggressively on calling the patients, asking them where things are at with the output. Um, and so doing a lot of virtual check-ins with patients rather than having them come in, we squirt the tube, all oh, things are, you know, the collection's gotten a little smaller, but it still needs to stay. You're still having output. We try to do all of that now over the phone, um, and so most things are, are, are decreased. You have your standard inpatient volume that really hasn't changed. Drainages, you know, if someone has an abscess, that's still an emergent procedure. That still needs to be done. Pneumothorax, you know, any kind of things like that. And the oncology, our institution has chosen to take the line, at least at this point where we're at in the pandemic, that oncology cases should continue because, obviously, there is no um, – there is no telling exactly when this will end, and many of those patients will be negatively affected if we delay their care. So we still are placing ports um, in patients who are starting chemotherapy. We still are doing, um, you know, I'm still doing ablations and embolizations. Um, in fact, if anything, because the schedule has freed up somewhat, I've actually been able to move forward a lot of my oncology practice. And because instead of the normal way in which we do business where I'm on academic days and I have some days in another hospital, now I'm just solidly at the main flagship. And so you'll see that I'm doing, you know, two chemo embos and a lung ablation and adrenal ablation all in the same day. Um, and I can have that set up for the entire week because, um, again, it's, it's, um, uh, it's opened up the schedule to try to get those patients in and get them sooner rather than later because it may be that there's a time where really – very few patients will come into the hospital at all, except for the COVID uh, positive patients. We don't know that that's the case, but that's what 
the, the eventuality that we would like to be prepared for, in which case we need anybody who needs to get treated, we try to bring them and treat them now. Yeah. Have you noticed that there was an increase in anything in terms of procedure-wise, like critically ill patients? Like I've, I've noticed people discussing things on the forum about increased uh, utilization of cholecystostomy uh, tubes or something like this, like in any example of like where you're seeing more critically ill patients that aren't candidates or, or surgeons are, are choosing to uh, defer to us for something where they can prevent the patient from getting on the vent. So, so it is interesting. You should ask. I, we, we, um, our first case on a COVID positive patient was indeed a cholecystostomy. Um, and that's actually been a discussion in my practice. Um, you know, I have actually done cholecystostomies, um, you know, not under fluoro, under ultrasound only before, but most of the partners in the practice are not uh, comfortable with that and feel that that would lead to uh, more higher complication rates. But, um, but we have not seen, you know, other than that one case, which is anecdotal, we have not seen like, you know, a ton of cholecystostomy cases, despite having, uh, you know, maybe 30 or so patients in our hospital with it. Um, but what I'm hearing from my friends, even over in, in, in Asia is, a lot of things that would have been surgically managed, um, they are choosing to have interventional manage it instead. So, for example, patients who might have gone for hepatic resection of a tumor, um, instead they'll say they'll uh, maybe relax their uh, restrictions on ablation or or on you know some other liver directed therapy um, because they don't want to tie up the resources for um, the OR and all of the all of the um, uh, supplies and equipment that go into that case versus a more efficient way of doing it in interventional radiology. So, um, so we, 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 I hear about it, but it's not, I think it's not as, um, it has not really impacted us to that degree that we're, we're seeing that. Sure. And, and speaking of, of utilization of, of resources, I noticed you had a couple of Twitter posts about, uh, reusing, uh, the PPEs or the N95s. I think that was what the post was about it was basically like the post of the N95 and then a mask on top of it. But can you speak a little bit about to the uh, maybe rationing or or using uh, the personal protective equipment wisely so that we can stretch out the resources that we have? Yeah, and I think that most of these. I will first preface it by saying I think most of these concerns, um, you know, our our manufacturing ability in this country is such that we will be able to rise to the occasion. It's just that there's a delay here at the time being. And everybody sure. wants to stretch out that time horizon before we, you know, before we get there. And so, um, you know, what we, we, we personally in our department have chosen to take the line that any COVID positive patient, we're either going to be wearing that PAPVR, you know, the, the, which is basically a, a, a fumed hood that you wear that, that is negative pressure. Um, so it keeps the viral particles out. And, and so it circulates the air and it has a filter. Um, you're either going to be wearing that or you're going to be wearing an N95 uh, for any um, COVID positive patient. So that's, you know, that you though you see a lot of institutional variation on that. Uh, most institutions, if, if for, if, at least for the people who are doing very high risk procedures, such as intubations, um, but also things that are considered a high risk of, uh, of vaporization or aspiration kind of things like coughing. So, you know, even if something as simple as putting down an NG tube for doing a G tube, um, you can imagine that that can incite, and we've often seen it, that can incite patients to cough and that can incite, uh, if a person was COVID positive and you were doing that, um, 
you know, you would be at risk if you, if you weren't wearing personal uh, protective equipment, at least an N95, if not a PAPDR. So, um, so the anesthesia teams, I think, are, are pretty much going to be, if they're working on a known COVID positive patient, is going to be working with um, uh, the PAPVR. And the other recommendation is, even though it's not considered primarily to spread through aerosolization, is that when you have a high-risk portion of the procedure, such as um, intubation or such as placement of the NG tube, you have the remainder of the staff step out, and either the anesthesiologist who's doing the intubation or the interventional radiologist who's placing the NG and maybe going to be exposed to that. And they can be there, you know, that solitary exposure rather than having the entire team in the room when a high-risk procedure is being performed. So the same for bronchoscopy. Um, you know, they're trying to reduce the number of bronchoscopies that are happening on these patients and not treating them um, as, uh, you know, as you would a normal person in ICU who you might bronch to figure out, you know, things about lung function and lavage and stuff. But because of the risk, they're, they're trying to, you know, change the strategy. Sure. And I'll also add that I know that SIR recently put out a... I guess it was a paper, maybe it's not a paper, maybe it's just uh, an update on procedures with common uh, reasons why a patient may aerosolize, um, you know, such as lung biopsies, chest tubes, like you mentioned, uh, in G tubes, especially like whenever you're doing G tubes. And, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So if uh, anyone in the audience wants to check that out, we'll, uh, SAR has got some good stuff out there that we'll be sure to link to. Um, yeah, they have a, they, they, they do have this um, aerosol generating procedures uh, performed by IR guides. It's a very long name thing, but um, yeah, they put that out on uh, I think the twenty seventh. So, and so have the have the ICU. So this this was something that we've seen in in my practice, and and I just want to see if maybe there's any mirror complement uh, what you're seeing at Penn. Have you been asked to help out uh, more with anything that's maybe non traditional IR or operating a little bit outside of your comfort zone? Like I, I know for me, most of the central lines that we would do. Um, we're almost exclusively in the cath lab. It would be, be very much the exception to put a line in on the floor. But um, given that some of the surgeons or um, anesthesiologists are stretched a little thin or they're out um, for um, personal reasons, we've been asked to kind of step up and, and assist in, in managing some of these ICU patients with line placement. Have you guys seen anything similar to that? I was just saying we uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but that's because the the volume of of COVID in Nashville hasn't quite hit those numbers. But you know, I suspect it's going to come based on what I've, I've heard from other people. Even you know, things like uh, like G tubes. You know, in addition to cholecystostomy tubes that I've seen that I've heard of people doing a lot more of once uh, those volumes have really increased. Yeah, we we again we have I think that um, at a place like Penn with a very very large. Um, critical care, uh, you know, group and, um, and a lot of, uh, you know, I think specialists like interventional pulmonologists and, um, and very large anesthesia group, we, we have a very deep well before they come to IR for, uh, kind of the bedside management. Um, sure. I, I do think obviously if we get to the sort of critical state that is happening in, um, in places like New York and obviously what happened in Italy, um, then you are going to get, you know, basically anybody who has those procedure skills is going to be called upon to assist. Um, and one thing that they've kept in the back pocket and we keep getting told is that we could be repurposed. Um, you know, I don't think that they're going to repurpose an IR to run vents, um, you know, unless they happen to also moonlight as a critical care doc. But I could see, a, I could see them um, repurposing us for some special procedures team. 
um, where we would go around uh, doing those kind of things. You know, that, that, again, that's not, um, they didn't tell us what we'd be repurposed for, but that's where I would see our role as being. But when I look at, you know, when I, when I talk to, for example, Dr. Pua uh, at uh, TikTok Tang in, in, in Singapore, you know, he is, he's continued to operating out of the IR suites and, um, and he sees, but he's in full battle regalia with negative pressure mask and stuff. Um, and I think you probably, you guys probably saw the tweet I put out on the, on the mask. They, they buy one from out yeah. of, uh, out of, uh, Australia that is, um, very expensive, but very lightweight and very, you know, it's all battery operated. It, um, um, and, and it kind of saves you from the, 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 uh, mass, uh, hazmat suits that you know everybody's used to from the dustin hoffman movie um so <laughs> Steven, was that the, the clean space halo that you tweeted that's what that's exactly, what that was clean space halo you know that's what that's what they're using but their hospital also is you know they they're a wealthier country and um they can afford to buy all their docs these things but um uh here they they do have actually a, a an american branch but i think when you're buying it you'd actually have to buy it from the australian branch because okay. it's not approved or something in the u.s but but in any case um you know there's there's different strategies like that um you know i've um i actually a friend a friend of mine in the uh in the uh military sent me a, an actual gas mask that, that is used for for <laughs> biological gas. so but that that's pretty scary i'd have to have my kids i think painted with flowers before i would be willing to see patients <laughs> in it and you know it looks kind of frightening um, but, but in any case, no, I think that the, the whole, the, the volumes of our department are significantly, significantly down because, you know, on purpose in order to both preserve resources as well sure. as to be ready for overflow. And what that means is that only a few doctors have to be assigned. And so how they've done it in my practice, and I think every practice is going to come to its own way of dealing with this, is that the, the older um, uh, members of the practice um, or anyone with, with sort of chronic medical conditions is put out of circulation. Um, and then, um, you know, where it used to be, you know, maybe you had four guys on instead you have two guys on for a week straight. Um, and they're also covering the call. Um, and then you rotate the next guys in. And so I'll be basically on next week and then I'll be off the following week and then I'll okay. be back up the following week. So it's kind of like one week on one week off. Um, and then the other week, you know, we're expected to do anything else we would have been doing like writing papers or whatever other, all of our administrative time or, even our clinic time, you know, um, today, for example, I was not in the hospital, but I'm not allowed to go into the hospital because I'm not operating. So, ah. um, instead I'm, instead I'm at, um, home right at my home office, calling all of my patients and having virtual, um, telehealth visits. So I was <laughs> going to ask you about that, Stephen, is what you guys are doing with the previously scheduled clinic visits, you know, for <laughs> things like, you know, oncology, you know, filter removals, you know, PAD for Presby, uh, you know, what are you doing with those patients? Are you trying to do some of them with video or phone or just rescheduling? No, everything is pretty much video or phone. So we, cool. we, our schedules have stayed the same. Um, and for many of my patients who come from pretty far away, they, they actually are quite happy because, um, totally. you know, we review their MRI, review their chest CT. And if they're from, you know, I have patients come to me from Schenectady or I have patients come to me from South Carolina or whatever, so for them, for me to just review it remotely and they can get it done where they are, it's, it's actually much more preferable. Um, and, it, and it may be that, that this sort of event will change some of the practice pattern that way. Um, the video, uh, and now it does just a, a heads up, the, the, the telephone calls, which is mostly what I'm doing right now because most of my patients haven't yet downloaded the Blue Jeans or Zoom or, or any of these platforms. So most of them are not facile yet with the 
um, video uh, platform. And Penn is also, people have gone in different directions as to which platform we're supposed to be using. So until they settle upon one, I think that we won't be, everybody won't be getting video conference calls. But um, but there is a significant difference going from a telehealth visit versus a video telehealth visit. So, um, so I think that eventually we're going to move towards mostly video telehealth visits when possible. Um, you know, if the patients uh, have been instructed on how to download, so they should be able to get a link. My understanding, and they and the link will just like a, a, a Zoom link or anything else, or this this uh, Uber conference link. Um, it will invite them both to the conference, and then you'll be able to kind of get on there. Um, on your phone or on your computer and, and have that, uh, that video visit with them. Stephen, you had mentioned earlier on when we were talking that you, you've been in contact with some other interventional radiologists. You mentioned uh, some buddies of yours in China and then uh, maybe another physician in Singapore. Uh, kind of going back to that, that thread, what are some of, the, some of the big take-home messages or some of the pearls that you were able to derive and execute in the pen practice that you've received from them that you found especially helpful in, in you know, uh, making sure that you guys are, are maximally prepared or as prepared as possible? Uh, well, first of all, I think that the, um, they, they impressed upon me very early um, the severity of these sort of occurrences um, because I think that most people uh, – Far, you know, a faraway place is is sort of just a faraway place. I mean, um, so I think that, that that's 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 a big part of it right there. Was just you know them saying, look, this is going to be this is going to impact the world in a very 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 major way, and the quicker you can get on top of it and change your practice pattern and understand the differences <clears throat> that you're going to be going through and accept those realities, you know, the better uh, the the better you're going to be prepared when the you not be overwhelmed. Um, so I think that. A, staying informed constantly about, you know, um, about not just what's going on in IR, but what else is happening in your hospital and what, what everybody else is planning um, and actually being present at those meetings as much as you can for the town hall meetings at the hospital or for whatever your various practice partners and touching base with them. You know, I kind of go through my list of the medical oncologists, the thoracic surgeons. My practice is mostly lung cancer, but, you know, obviously the, the hepatologist and, and the liver surgeons. And I'm just constantly touching base with everybody. Where do you, how do you want to proceed with these cases? You know, and kind of uh, trying to stay involved that way. Number two would be that um, I think that you want to have a formal written policy for um, you know for how you're going to deal with the workflow of patients who are COVID positive. Are you going to designate a room? Are you, is it only your your IR is only willing to do procedures on these patients at bedside um, so that we're not um, having the patients transported through the hospital? Whatever the policy is that makes sense for your institution, and it's going to differ from place to place, that has to be established early so that there's not a lot of chaos in making these decisions um, on the seat of the pants. Because if you say, okay, we're going to designate this room, admittedly there's some risk there, but if you're prepared for it and everybody knows exactly this is the steps you take, everybody's coming through this door, everybody's donning their PPE and, and you know donning and doffing the PPE in this ante room, all of the dirty stuff is going in this place. You can imagine how there's actually a lot of planning that has to go into that and you can rehearse it. And so we actually had one of those rehearsals this morning remotely, virtually. All of those kind of things you want to, um, you want to have thought of beforehand. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Um, what, you know, obviously what PPE you're going to be using in a situation, I think that, that that is going to be institutionally dependent and somewhat practice dependent. But at a minimum, I would say, you know, you should be able to have an N95 that you can keep 
and then just wear outer masks. And that's what I was uh, talking about in that other tweet. The, the whole point being that the outer mask is going to be discarded um, and is going to catch any kind of like real major flow. Um, and then the, the, you have to be careful, of course, how you move your N95, being careful not to uh, um, uh, touch the outside. But there's also you can spray it with alcohol. You can let it sit for overnight. Um, and uh, and apparently that is that is sufficient for uh, for it being completely uh, dead, and particularly if you have it covered with another mask. So um, so I think I think a lot of it is policy and procedure related. You know, what it, just kind of set, setting up your plan of attack. Anytime you go into battle, you want to have that. And then what are the contingency plans for physicians in your practice getting sick? That's absolutely critical. And we don't. Even in the regular flu season, we just don't think about those things as much as we should. Um, and so this year we've had two partners going out with really bad um, uh, uh, respiratory infections this, this, this past winter, the past couple months, one of whom ended up in the hospital for a few weeks um, and, uh, and uh, you know, nearly on event, and the other one who was just home. But, but in both cases, you know, I think that we – it was a bit of a – you know a scrambling there because again, having these contingency plans in place, everybody steps up. But I think you, if you can talk about that with your partners, you know, like what happens if you're out, who's stepping into that role, who's going to be covering that hospital, how are we going to split up the work, particularly if you're covering multiple hospitals? Um, I think having contingency plans is critical. Um, and then having some method of, of having uh, touching, you know, touching, touching base. If you guys used to have a physical conference where everybody came together for staff meeting, then you set that up as a virtual meeting for a check-in and, and see what's happening at everybody's place because maybe you're not rotating between hospitals. Maybe you're going to separate it like we've done into different practices. So I think that that's um, that's another one of those pieces that I would um, uh, I think that you've got to have it have that in place. Um, and then that list of procedures, I think that that's reasonable. And then uh, and then your interface with the remainder. You know, we're we're right now sending around a, a you know a draft that it is getting revised by all of us in terms of how we want to word. Um, you know, uh, basically our interface with these patients. Um, and so patients who can get the procedure done at bedside, but, but, but here's the procedures that we feel will be fluoroscopy necessary. And if they're going to be fluoroscopy necessary, either they go to this particular named OR where there is, um, uh, you know, negative filtration and a C-arm, um, or they come to IR and they're going to be done in this room and that's going to be our designated dirty room. So kind of like laying all those things out, again, having kind of a plan. And it takes, it takes work. But um, with many of the practices slowing down, um, I think that the time is there. It's just that's what, that's what our time is now filled with, you know, um, is really planning for this and not, you know, sitting on our hands saying, oh, you know, where, where did my practice go? It's really getting ready for the, ready for the storm in that way. Man, I think there, I think there was so much good advice there, Stephen. Like a, a couple, I mean, a couple of the takeaway points that I just had from from that piece of information or those pieces of information was that you know, plan, plan, plan. Like if you're going to go into a battle, you want to have a plan of attack. And then I love the idea of the rehearsal for whatever lab you decide to use or whatever you decide that works best for your workflow. If you have a designated, you know, quote unquote, dirty room that. You go through the policies and the procedures that you plan on executing with, you know, all the staff to make sure that whenever it comes game time, everyone's ready to, you know, play up to the level of practice that you've already been uh, putting in the work. Um, that's fantastic. I really, yeah. I really appreciate you guys having me on. And I think that, um, I think in some ways, um, you know, we will just like, just like what they went through in the early 2000s. Um, and then again, what they went through in, in, um, 
in 2009, um, we will come out of this a lot more prepared. I mean, one of the things that um, I really, in retrospect, have thought about is that, you know, in 2009, with the swine flu outbreak here in the United States, um, I remember I was a first year resident then um, in radiology and, um, and my wife was pregnant. And I started seeing on, you know, I was on a chest rotation. I started seeing all these pregnant women coming in and getting put on vents for this, this pneumonia or flu or whatever. And so I came home to her and I was like, something's going on. There's some kind of bad flu going around or pneumonia. Um, and I really think she was, a, she's a pediatrician. So I said, I really think you should stop working until whatever this is blows over because you know, I'm, I'm worried that you're going to be one of these people. And, um, you know, we went back and forth a little bit. She did end up, um, stopping her practice, um, and, um, and because she started to get a flood of, of children coming in with this. Um, but in any case, um, that, that's, that's kind of my memory of it. But when you really go back and look at what happened, you know, 60 million Americans caught this thing, 12,000, you know, somewhere in the 12,000 to 18,000 Americans died. But most people don't even remember it. You know, it's, it's completely not even in their memory of, of having happened. And partly because we were going through a financial crisis um, in the country, um, and partly just because uh, the media wasn't focused on that, it was focused elsewhere. But this this thing, you know, went around the world and killed countless people. But these things were happening, and we weren't really that aware of it. And so part of it is we're we're now focused on this, but it's also our opportunity to learn the lessons of these things and being prepared, um, so that next time it's not as much of a scramble to get ready. And that's what I think a lot of my Asian colleagues would say is. You know, they published some great papers on it, talking about their experiences. I would recommend those papers to everyone. One of them is in AJR. There was a couple in radiology as well. Um, and so I would say read those things, and, and we all should have some humility because we have our colleagues who have kind of been through this, and they're, they're now a little bit more battle-hardened, and they're giving us their advice on these things. And so I think that we all will come through this uh, as a country and, and be a lot uh, better prepared for the next one. Um, but in the meantime, we have a lot of uh, – you know, we've got some dark days ahead. Um, and uh, I think as a community, I hope we can all come together, um, share our best practices, um, get, you know, get each other's backs, cover your older uh, folks on service who, who maybe maybe would be at higher risk, um, do all those things that, that um, we can do and recognize that we're going to, you know, there's going to be some financial hit for everybody too. Um, but uh, but we, this is, this is our, our moment to prove uh, what we've always been saying, which is that IR has uh, infinite potential to to offer to the to the uh, medical community, um, and we also are willing to step up and uh, and play our role. Totally agree. Totally agree. And and you brought up a couple things, um, guys. Uh, audience, um, we will put out some show notes on on this topic and a, kind of an outline of what we discussed. But some of the things that we'll link to are. Um, any of the papers that maybe Stephen referenced and I could uh, rustle up. Some of the SIR, SAR has put out some uh, nice papers and instruction on uh, sample classifications of procedures that are elective, time sensitive, uh, emergent, and then a list of procedures where uh, patients are at high risk for aerosolization or coughing up COVID-19. Um, and we'll make sure that all those are in the show notes. Stephen, thanks so much for having uh, for coming on the show again. Um, guys, if you missed him on an earlier podcast episode, he did a great one on lung ablation, which we'll also link to. Uh, Michael, also thank you for coming on and um, you know sharing your experience and a couple questions for Stephen. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Michael.